Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Friday's meeting of 50 defence ministers with the Ukraine contact group who were unable to persuade Germany to allow Denmark, Finland and Poland to send leopard tanks to Ukraine, which the country desperately needs ahead of an expected Russian offensive in the next month or so. Joining us is Anna Grusamala-Busa, a professor of international studies in the Department of Political Science, the director of the Europe Centre and senior fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute at Stanford University. Her research focuses on the historical development of the state and its transformation, political parties, religion and politics, and post-communist politics. And her books include Redeeming the Communist Past, The Regeneration of Communist Successor Parties, Rebuilding Leviathan, Party Competition and State Development in Post-Communist Europe, and Nations Under God, How Churches Use Moral Authority to Influence Politics. We will assess why Chancellor Schultz is so stubborn as he continues to drag his heels to the point he is lagging behind German public opinion, which is in support of the embattled Ukrainians and their leader, who is pleading with Schultz that while he talks, Russia kills. Then we'll examine the three private armies fighting in Russia and whether we are witnessing the phenomenon that once a state loses the monopoly on state violence and militias and warlords emerge, as is the case of Prigozhin's Wagner Group, Hadirov's Chechen fighters, and Shoigu's Patriot Private Military Company, we could end up with a failed state with an enormous nuclear arsenal. Joining us is Alexander Motel, a professor of political science at Rutgers University and a specialist on Ukraine, Russia, and the USSR, and on nationalism, revolutions, empire, and theory. He's the author of 10 books of nonfiction, as well as Imperial Ends, The Decay, Collapse, and Revival of Empires, and Why Empires Reemerge, Imperial Collapse, and Imperial Revival in Comparative Perspective. We will discuss his article at The Hill, As Russia Weakens, Whoever Has Soldiers and Guns Will Survive. Then finally, with the U.S. designating the Wagner Mercenary Group as an international criminal enterprise, we will examine the history and the growing influence of Prigozhin's Wagner Group and speak with someone who got to know the private military contractors' inner workings, having been hired by them to make a documentary. Joining us is Robert Young Pelton, an author, filmmaker, journalist and explorer. He is the publisher of Dangerous Magazine and has had first-hand experience on the war on terror from direct contact with the world's most infamous jihadi, rebel and insurgent groups. His books include The World's Most Dangerous Places, Come Back Alive, Three Worlds Gone Mad, License to Kill, Hired Guns in the War on Terror, and his autobiography, The Adventurist. And he recently returned from visiting the front in Ukraine. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news 
as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Anna Grisamala-Busa, who is a professor of international studies in the Department of Political Science and the director of the Europe Center and a senior fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute at Stanford University. Her research focuses on the historical development of the state and its transformation, political parties, religion and politics, and post-communist politics. And her books include Redeeming the Communist Past, The Regeneration of Communist Successor Parties, Rebuilding Leviathan, Party Competition and State Development in Post-Communist Europe, and Nations Under God, How Churches Use Moral Authority to Influence Politics. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anna Guzmala Busa. Thank you very much. So, Anna, what's going on with the the Hamlet-like vacillation on the part of German leaders? The new defense minister, Boris Pretorius, was put on the spot at Ramstein Air Base on Friday where 50 defense ministers in the Ukraine contact group uh, apparently sort of ganged up on him and said, when are you going to get off the dime and start providing the leopard tanks that the Ukrainians have been asking for for uh, almost a year? And this answer was still no. I understand that his boss, the new chancellor, has a kind of stubborn streak But at the end of the day, the question arises, is Germany willing to stand up to Putin? Right. Well, I think Germany thinks it is standing up to Putin. But I think there are three different things going on here that will always make Germany an uneasy and unwilling partner in the fight that Ukraine has in fighting for its sovereignty. The first of this is that there's always been a deferential attitude towards the Soviet Union and then to Russia in Germany itself after World War II. Part of this is the guilt over World War II. Part of it is the pacifism that sort of you know, permeated the German foreign policy establishment afterwards. And part of it is the recognition that this is a fellow imperial power um, towards the Soviet Union and Russia. Secondly, the German foreign policy um, establishment after the fall of communism basically predicated its entire orientation towards Russia, towards integrating Russia in the economy, in the European economy. And so you have a lot of investment, Um, You have a creation basically under Merkel of an energy dependence on Russia. You have a lot of oligarch funds and dollars being parked in uh, German real estate and various real uh, German properties. And the German foreign policy elite really felt that this was a way of ensuring that Russia would basically be integrated within Europe. Um, Of course, this turned out to be entirely mistaken. What Germany did instead was to make Europe dependent on Russia for its energy with predictably awful consequences um, last February. And I think third, there is something about Schultz himself. You know, this is uh, for, there are two things going on with Schultz himself. One is that he was, in his earlier days, um, a Marxist, and he and Gerhard Schroeder were in a youth organization that was anti-NATO, anti-United States, that promoted basically um, a greater detente with the Soviet Union. And he also is trying to find himself. He wants to think of himself as a statesman. You know, this is the former mayor of Hamburg who's now on the national stage. And he thinks it's statesmanlike not to be rushed into making a decision and to take his own sweet time. So I think there's that sort of aspect, um, a very personal one going on as well. But this is part and parcel of a much larger sort of set of attitudes that the German foreign policy establishment has towards Russia and towards protecting what it thinks are German interests vis-à-vis Russia. Well, on Friday, Schultz's spokesperson 
denied that that Germany was tying the release of uh, leopard tanks or giving permission to others in NATO who have leopard tanks, but under the agreement, they, Germany has to sign off. And apparently Denmark and Finland and Poland in particular have for the longest time wanted to send the leopard tanks, and they can't, or at least they're restrained by this this provision that Germany has to sign off. But on Friday, Scholz's spokesperson said that they weren't denied that they were tying the release of leopard tanks to the U.S. sending the Abrams tanks, which the U.S. doesn't want to do. So who's at fault here? Is Germany taking the heat for America? No, it's not. I don't think so. And, you know, of course, the United States, I think, frankly, the best thing for the United States to do would be to send one or two Abrams tanks because that would remove the excuse. But fundamentally, you know, Abrams tanks take um, aviation fuel. They're notoriously unreliable. The Leopards are simply more advanced and are a much better fit in Europe itself. And as for letting other countries send the Leopards to, uh, to Ukraine, the export restrictions, the export licenses have not been lifted yet. So legally, um, whether Poland or Finland or Denmark, those countries cannot send leopards to Ukraine legally. So everybody is waiting for the wheels of the bureaucracy to move and for those export licenses, uh, those export restrictions to be lifted. But there's absolutely no sign of that happening. Right. But on Wednesday, the Polish prime minister said that Poland was considering giving its tanks to Ukraine, even without Germany's permission. Just to quote him, he said, consent is of secondary importance here. We will either obtain it quickly or we will do the right thing ourselves. So do you think he's going to go ahead? I mean, they've got a number of uh, leopard. I mean, there are 2,300 leopard tanks have been produced. One of the things that I find extraordinary, Anna, is that apparently there's a bunch of leopard tanks in Germany that could be updated. They just need sort of repairing and they've been sitting in a warehouse for a year, and the work is not being done. So even if you get permission to to send refurbished leopards from Germany, they're going to take months to fix these things. Why, why not have done this in the in the meantime? I, I, I don't understand. I think this is you know this is part of a classic German approach to this, which is you know Germany didn't take its military defense very seriously. It doesn't take its military obligations towards NATO such as they are very seriously. And it basically, for the longest time, counted on the United States to do the heavy lifting. So while the United States has maintained, you know, all the sort of logistical support necessary, um, it's not, and it's not just Germany, right? There are 200 leopard tanks in Spain that are basically unusable because they haven't been maintained at all. The bigger problem with Germany is that it's not even clear how many leopards Germany actually has. The former minister, Foreign Minister Christian Lambrecht, basically, I'm sorry, not Foreign Minister, Minister of Defense, Christian Lambrecht basically refused to set up an inventory of all the different leopards that they might have and how usable they are um, so that she could relieve pressure on Schultz. So it's even worse than that. They don't know how many leopards they have. They don't know how many are usable. And frankly, for those to be sent to Ukraine would, I'm sure, run into the teeth of the German bureaucratic machine, which would insist on reviews, um, on inventories, um, and so on. Well, Apparently, as you pointed out, uh, Anna, it's probably much superior to the U.S. Abrams tanks, which have a, a jet engine, and they have to be powered with jet fuel right. as opposed to diesel. And they're, it's a typical of the American military industrial complex. In, instead of a Timex, you have a Rolex. You know, you have a complicated 
piece of equipment that's prone to breaking down, whereas a, a simple and solid piece of equipment tends to work better. So it's kind of a false argument. I think your, your point's well taken. If they just handed them over a few, I mean, is the U.S. worried that the Abrams could fall into the hands of the Russians? Is, is there any any validity to that? You know, the Abrams has been used all over the Middle East, and some of them have fallen into the wrong hands, into enemy hands. And mm-hmm. there wasn't a big guhaha about that. So I don't think it's about that. Um, I think this is fundamentally about sort of, you know, the time that it would take to send the Abrams. They're very finicky requirements. And the training, whereas uh, many soldiers are already familiar with the Leopards, and there's already some training that's begun um, in Poland for Ukrainian soldiers to on how to use the Leopards. So I think it would just be easier logistically in many other ways to do that. So Poland has Leopards, and, and what, about 50 they want to give in, in good working condition, is that right? I think so, yes. I'm not sure the exact numbers. Right. But in the broader sense, what's going on here is that Ukraine's President Zelensky is is really sounding the the alarm that Russia is planning on a, a new offensive, and it's it's obviously doing so, and putting the squeeze on Belarus where they are able to stage from the north. So it could, within the next months or so, a massive new attack could happen on all fronts. I mean, isn't isn't that a reality? So what Zelensky said at Davos after. Schultz uh, made those vacillating comments was that, you know, while you're talking, the enemy is killing. Absolutely. And, you know, I think to be entirely cynical, I think for Schultz, the end goal isn't that Ukraine wins. It's that Ukraine survives long enough to enter what his own end goal is, which is negotiations with Russia. I think, you know, what Schultz would like to do more than anything else is to return to the status quo ante, to doing a lot of business with Russia and getting a lot of kickbacks and payments from Russia itself to his you know, various buddies. Um, but the idea that you know, this is somehow going to be supporting a true Ukrainian victory is beyond him. He just wants him to negotiate, and he wants Ukraine to survive, but not be too strong, um, so that they both enter the negotiating table, and then Germany thinks it can play a role. But doesn't Schultz realize who he's dealing with? I mean, all the pretenses are off. For the longest time, I've always been absolutely mystified why any Western leader took Putin seriously and treated him as a global statesman when he came to power by blowing up apartment buildings and killing 300 of his own citizens. That's who this man is from day one, out of the gate. And now he's shown his absolute disregard for human life and and the cruelty with which he's pursuing this war. It's just heartbreaking to see a country destroyed before your eyes. I mean, are the German people concerned about what's happening next door, basically, to the Ukrainian people? Absolutely. In fact, you know, current levels of support for Schultz are 39% and declining. The support for sending leopards is 46%. So there are more Germans who would like to send leopards than to support Schultz. But I think Schultz fundamentally isn't even thinking in terms of Putin. He's thinking in terms of what he thinks are superpower politics where it is in Germany's interest to have a powerful Russia that will supply energy, that will supply you know, investment, that will be home to German investment, not realizing that he's basically supporting, you know, if, if, if Ukraine, if the offensive happens and Ukraine loses badly, it will be on Germany's hands. And I don't think that's a possibility that Schultz is taking seriously. 
Well, are the German people aware that that's a possibility? Because I don't think Zelensky is crying wolf. I think this is a make-or-break situation. If they can't hold back a new offensive, even if it may be desperate on Putin's part, and even if he's throwing in hundreds of thousands of untrained recruits and a bunch of prisoners, he's still going to do a lot of damage. And that country's already been at war for almost a year. And we don't know how many soldiers the Ukrainians have lost, but it's probably around, you know, it could be as high as 50,000 killed and wounded, uh, if not higher. They can't fight much longer. So is there an awareness that we're at a critical moment? I mean, I'm sure these arguments have been put forth to both Schultz and to Prestorius. I'm sure they have been, but they remain, they remain unmoved. I think Schultz will eventually send the leopards. But, you know, this is going to be with an extensive delay, and he wants to make sure that he does it on his own terms. By that point, everyone will want to have, again, will have fed up, will, be, will have been totally fed up with Germany's obstructionism, with its delays, and with what's become known as Schultzing, which is, to promise something and then to delay it into non-existence. So will the Danes and, and the Poles, the Finns, send their tanks much more expeditiously? You know, I think everyone wants to do this the right way. Everyone wants Germany to officially lift the export restrictions. And that happens automatically if Germany sends leopards to Ukraine. That will be the preference. But I think if the offensive begins and the situation gets even worse, um, I don't think anyone would blame Poland or Denmark or any of the other countries for sending the leopards, irrespective of Germany's delays. Yeah, but the time to send them is now, surely. They've got to be trained. Absolutely, which is why everyone is basically desperately hoping that Schultz finally sees um, what is inevitable. But again, this is somebody who really wants to play the statesman and who thinks that by taking his time, he becomes more of a statesman in the eyes of the German public. Yeah, but in the eyes of history, he may come across as a manifest failure. Absolutely, but then he wouldn't be the first German leader to have grossly miscalculated uh, what doing the right thing is. Right, but if he's a protege of Schroeder, Schroeder is just a crook, isn't he? I mean, he just he's just been living off Russian money ever since. And by the way, now that the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines are blown up, I don't see them getting back into that deal quickly. Absolutely. And I think you know, I totally agree with you on Schroeder and the kind of influence that Schroeder has had on Schultz and not just on Schultz. Right. There are so many politicians in Germany who are grossly implicated in basically being paid for um, by Russia in order to advance Russian interests in Germany. They're not, they're not the only ones. But I think Schultz is thinking beyond simply energy. First, he thinks that there'll be other ways to get the energy from Russia. Secondly, he's, he's thinking about German car manufacturing and sort of, you know, German industry in general and its exports to Russia. And third, there's a ton of oligarchs who park their money and their investments in Germany itself. And that certainly apparently seems to matter to him quite a bit. And he again thinks that the end goal here is just to get the two sides, you know, the aggressor and the invaded to the negotiating table rather than to ensure Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian victory. I don't think he understands that Ukraine is fighting for its survival and for European security. And if Putin prevails, we will basically have a never-ending security threat looming from Russia. And not just vis-a-vis you know, -vis Ukraine, but vis-a-vis -vis Europe. For whatever reason, he doesn't view this as a real threat. Well, Anna Gruzamala Busa, I thank you so much for joining us here today. 
Thank you. Great to talk to you as always. Well, thank you, Anna. And again, I've been speaking with Anna Guzamala Busa, who is a professor of international studies in the Department of Political Science, the director of the Europe Center, and a senior fellow at the Freemans Bogley Institute for, at Stanford University. Her research focuses on the historical development of the state and its transformation, political parties, religion and politics, and post-communist politics. And her books include Redeeming the Communist Past, The Regeneration of Communist Successor Parties, Rebuilding Leviathan, Party Competition and State Development in Post-Communist Europe, and Nations Under God, How Churches Use Moral Authority to Influence Politics. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the phenomenon that once a state loses the monopoly on state violence and militias and warlords emerge, as is the case in Russia, could we end up with a failed state with an enormous nuclear arsenal? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Alexander Modell, who's a professor of political science at Rutgers University, a specialist on Ukraine, Russia, and the USSR, and on nationalism, revolutions, empire, and theory. He's the author of 10 books of nonfiction, as well as Imperial Ends, The Decay, Collapse, and Revival of Empires, and Why Empires Reemerge: Imperial Collapse and Imperial Revival in Comparative Perspective. And he has an article at The Hill, as Russia weakens, whoever has soldiers and guns will survive. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alexander Motel. Thank you for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Alexander. And your article begins, and let me just read the first sentence. When does a state fail? The short answer is when it loses its monopoly on violence, when warlords, revolutionaries, or drug cartels control all or most of its territory, the state has failed and effectively ceased to exist. And then you go on to say that the Russian Federation seems to be headed for state failure. So it's pretty hard to get your head around the idea that Russia could end up like Haiti is today, but you think it's a possibility? Yes, as a matter of fact, I think it's a very distinct possibility, and not just theoretical uh, we're not just fantasizing. I mean, all the preconditions for such a transformation are actually present. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to happen, uh, but I I would bet a you know I'd bet a hundred dollars that it might happen within the next one or two years. And the idea that the state is losing its monopoly on violence because there are warlords and and cartels operating, I mean. It is a mafia state to begin with, and the competition now between the, the Wagner group, headed by Prigozhin, and the regular military is right out in the open, with Prigozhin boasting that he's doing better than the military and claiming to have, claiming the victory in Solodar was his exclusively. He actually used the word exclusively. So he's openly challenging the Russian military. Is that, though, just the way that a mafia state operates? In other words, 
If you think about the movie The Godfather, you have a crew, a mafia crew. They go out and commit crimes and steal and make money, and then they pay the godfather who protects them a tribute. So it's a kind of competitive system where you've got to you know, keep producing ill-gotten gains in order to keep the godfather happy. Is that what's going on with Prigozhin? He can continually uh, trying to please Putin? Well, there's certainly something to that. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's been argued, and I can see the evidence for this as well, that Putin is arguably uh, kind of, he's sort of the grand puppeteer, and he's uh, trying to create fissures amongst uh, various members of the elite. So it's Prigozhin versus the arm, the general staff. It's Prigozhin's Wagner group versus the army. That way he can keep everybody sort of off balance. They're focused on uh, conflicts amongst themselves, and that presumably then enhances his power. Um, alternatively, he's not doing that, right? Again, we don't know for certain. I would say that either way, whether Putin is the grand puppeteer or whether Prigozhin is acting on his own, uh, it's a very dangerous game, and it's a very... Uh, It's a game that is fraught with all sorts of destabilizing tendencies for Russia. Because either way, an independent actor, namely Prigozhin, with a sizable army that is also well-trained, well-fed, is being created. And it's being placed in opposition to the existing armed forces. Um, That may help Putin stay in power, but it's not going to help Russia stick around for long because that's just the way that, I mean, essentially what Putin would be doing is sort of encouraging the emergence of warlords, well, in this case, one particular one, although there's another one, the fellow, uh, the Chechen, Ramzan Kadyrov, who also has a private army of about 10, 15,000 guys. Uh, so with two private armies contending for power with the regular army, you're courting disaster. I mean, this is what you mean by state failure, when the army isn't the only game in town. Well, specifically, uh, Hadiros, uh, you know, 12,000-odd Chechen fighters, they're under the command of Russia's National Guard, which reports to Putin. Right. That's clearly the case, and that's obviously a way in which Putin is trying to maintain control over the National Guard. Uh, excuse me, over the Kadyrovites. But it's generally agreed that Kadyrov actually runs the show. Um, And there again, you know, even if Putin has the formal authority to make decisions about where and how and when the Kadyrovites will will be deployed, the mere fact that there is such an army, and it's the second large one, um, means that in, in effect the Russian armed forces are losing control of the monopoly on violence. That's just bad news for the Russian Federation. I mean, there's no way you can justify that and say that it's, you know, it acts, um, it contributes to the stability of the Russian state. It may help Putin tem- uh, temporarily, but it's in the long run, it's a suicidal strategy. Well, there's another factor as well uh, that I, I've been reading about Alexander, and that is what happens when these veterans return? 
either from the armed forces, you know, and initially they recruited from the poorest, furthest regions in the East, and, you know, these poor kids with virtually nothing uh, were slaughtered. And now, of course, they're recruiting. Uh, Wagner is recruiting from the prisons, at least 40,000 Russian prisoners now fighting in uh, eastern Ukraine, and they're suffering enormous casualties. But the survivors, since they've been pardoned already, they'll go back into society, and they're dangerous psychopaths and murderers and rapists, etc. So is it possible that there's going to be a, a kind of backlash here with veterans who are disillusioned, angry? There's already a partisan movement in Russia, groups of partisans now fighting against uh, the Putin dictatorship. Is that likely to feed that movement? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, you mentioned the 40,000 inmates who were drafted by the Wagner group and then promised to be released. Well, a couple of hundred have actually made the grade and survived. But the casualty rate amongst these 40,000 is enormous. I mean, I saw an estimate just a few days ago that something like 27 to 28,000 have been killed within a few weeks. Uh, that's just not sustainable. And you know, imagine the impact this is having on the surviving 13,000. You know, how, how dedicated will they be to fighting um, Prigozhin's orders? Uh, how will that affect other inmates? And again, there too, I've read that the enthusiasm for joining Wagner has diminished, unsurprisingly. But you've got to figure the following. Um, a state, a country that is drafting criminals is a state that's in serious trouble. Uh, it obviously means that they don't have enough of their own people, regular citizenry, to fight on behalf of Russia and Putin. Um, and as you said, the other important thing to keep in mind is uh, sooner or later, these soldiers, whether they're criminals or whether they're Wagnerites or whether they're just, arm, you know, just soldiers within the armed forces, Sooner or later, some of them will survive, some of them will come home, and they'll come home with stories about this genocidal war being waged in Ukraine, um, a war that the Russians are getting beaten um, at. Um, and the last thing you want, if you want to maintain the stability of a country, is a large number of angry soldiers potentially returning home with weapons. This is exactly what happened in Russia in 1916 and 1917 during World War I. They were fleeing the front, going back home. They were armed. They were angry. They were revolutionary. And they helped contribute to the overthrow of the czarist regime. And the same thing arguably can happen and arguably is already happening within Russia. Uh, so the news overall is, I mean, at least in terms of the armed forces and the capacity of the Russian state to keep itself in power is is bad for them. I mean, arguably that's good for Ukraine and, and for the rest of the world, but it's very counterproductive for Russia. Well, you know about the uh, defector from the Wagner group who crossed the border up in the Arctic into uh, Norway, and is now being debriefed. One of the things that he's already said just shows you the cynicism and criminality of Prigozhin. Apparently, 
they give them a contract, they pay them money, and then they give them death benefits for the next of kin. So in order to avoid the death benefits, because they're being mowed down as cannon fodder, these prisoners, and if they try to retreat, they get shot from behind. So the, literally the ground is littered with these bodies, and they, they toss all the bodies into an open grave and then bulldoze over it, and they disappear. And then Prigozhin lists them as missing in action, so he doesn't have to pay the death benefits. Exactly. I've, see, I've, I've read the same exact information, yes. And, of course, it just goes to show how cynical they are. I mean, they've been doing the same with, with the regular army, by the way, because there, too, they'd have to pay death benefits. And it's just much more convenient for the, for the authorities to declare someone missing in action. Well, technically, they are. If you're dead, you are missing in action. <laughs> right. Where did you get the figure that the Russians had already suffered 200,000 casualties? Uh, well, close. They're not yet at 200,000. It's 120,000. That's 120,000 dead. Dead, yes. Those are Ukrainian estimates, mm -hmm. uh, which I'm inclined to believe. I mean, they might be a little high, um, but the way in which they count the bodies is with drones on the spot in the immediate aftermath of the fighting. So even though there's obviously some inaccuracy, my guess is that these are more, uh, more accurate than the numbers that are produced by the United States or the British. Uh, General Milley, I believe it was Milley or possibly Austin, I forget which one, uh, mentioned just recently that the numbers of Russian casualties, dead and wounded, is significantly, quote-unquote, higher than 120,000. Um, well, if it's, say, 180,000, that's pretty much in the ballpark with the Ukrainian estimates. Mm -hmm. So what uh, are the Ukrainian casualties, uh, Alexander? We don't know. Uh, the Ukrainians have been very tight-lipped on this. Uh, once in a while, someone will come out and say it's our casualties are in a one to three or one to five ratio. At the extreme, I've heard one to ten ratio. That just sounds unrealistic. My own sense is that it's probably one third the Russian number. So if it's 120,000 Russians, it's probably about 40,000 Ukrainians. That sounds right. It also sounds right because if it were significantly more, there'd be far more of an outcry and an uproar within Ukrainian social media, um, in, on the various blogs, on the websites, and so on. And it hasn't been there. And in as much as the media are free, you know, they're free to say whatever they want, um, I'm, I, again, I'm, I inc I'm inclined to trust them. That is to say, the absence of news suggests to me that the numbers really aren't quite as high as those suffered by the Russians. That also makes sense because the Russians have just been performing atrociously and the Ukrainians have been performing extremely well. And you would imagine that that would also translate into the number of casualties. Just to remind your listeners, uh, the Soviet Union lost something like 13 to 14,000 men in nine years in Afghanistan. Uh, so if the Ukrainian numbers are 120, that's roughly 10 times as many, eight or, eight or nine or 10 times as many within a year. 
This is simply astounding. At this rate, the Russians will lose another 80,000, 90,000 men by the end of the year. That's 200,000. And it could, it could be higher because you, you mentioned the, you know, the soldiers being sent in as cannon fodder. That wasn't the case in the first months of the war. They just happened to have been badly trained. But now they're actually using these human wave strategies, uh, which entail enormous casualties. Again, according to Ukrainian statistics, over the last several weeks, average daily loss of Russian soldiers has been roughly between 700 and 850, which is, again, it's almost unimaginably high. Um, but again, journalists and analysts tend to agree that it is extremely high, so the numbers sound right. Well, just in the last minute, Alexander, Putin is planning a new offensive in the spring, and it looks like they're going to also attack from the north, from Belarus, as well as along the east and in the south. So where's he getting the people from, and what kind of motivation is there? Will he be able to succeed in any measure? Because, I mean, we know that Zelensky is desperate for new arms because he knows the offensive is coming and the, the Germans are dithering, etc. cetera. Uh, absolutely. Well, they're, they already started a mobilization, I mean, that was several weeks ago, of about 300,000 soldiers. And they've been having great difficulties training and supplying them and clothing them and feeding them. And the idea is to mobilize another 300,000 uh, in time for the spring or you know, early spring, late winter for this uh, presumed offensive. Uh, and again, according to the analysts I've been reading, I mean, they're going to have even greater problems with training and feeding and clothing these guys, too. Um, so on the one hand, that means there will be potentially a an additional, well, you know, you count the soldiers who've been mobilized recently and the new ones, say anywhere, you know, 400, 500, maybe even 600,000 new guys. On the other hand, they will all have been relatively poorly trained, poorly equipped, poorly fed, poorly clothed. So in all likelihood, they will serve as cannon fodder. And then the question is simply, which runs out first? Uh, Ukrainian bullets, I mean, metaphorically speaking, or Russian soldiers. Um, if the United States and its allies in Europe continue supplying Ukraine with the weapons it needs, and thus far, except for the tanks, um, the news uh, is pretty good. I mean, Ukraine is, has been getting a lot and is being promised even more. Uh, that just happened uh, a day or two ago at Rammstein, the Rammstein Group meeting. Um, so if Ukraine keeps on getting this kind of weaponry, and then, of course, if it gets tanks as well, and the prospects for that are pretty good, then I would place my money on the Ukrainian ability to fight off these hundreds of thousands of poorly trained, poorly equipped recruits. Uh, this will be a tragedy, of course, and it will have unimaginably negative consequences for Russian society and economy. Um, but that's Putin's decision, and there you go. But what's scary for all of us is what your article's about, and that is that Russia could become in the next couple of years a failed state. A failed state with a massive nuclear arsenal is an incredibly 
horrendous proposition. And I, I thank you for joining us here today, Alexander Motel. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Alexander Motel, who's a professor of political science at Rutgers University, a specialist on Ukraine, Russia, and the USSR, and on nationalism, revolutions, empires, and theory. He's the author of 10 books of nonfiction, as well as Imperial Ends, The Decay, Collapse, and Revival of Empires, and Why Empires Reemerge, Imperial Collapse, and Imperial Revival in Comparative Perspective. And he has an article at The Hill, As Russia weakens, whoever has soldiers and guns will survive. You take a brief station break. And finally, with the U.S. having designated the Wagner Mercenary Group as an international criminal enterprise, we'll talk to somebody who knows their inner workings, having been hired by them to make a documentary. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Robert Young Pelton, who's an author, filmmaker, journalist, and explorer. He's the publisher of Dangerous Magazine and has had a first-hand perspective on the war on terror from direct contact with the world's most infamous jihadi, rebel, and insurgent groups. His books include The World's Most Dangerous Places, Come Back Alive, Three Worlds Gone Mad, Licensed to Kill, Hired Guns in the War on Terror, and his autobiography, The Adventurous, and he recently returned from the front in Ukraine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Young Pelton. Thank you, Ian, as always. Well, thanks for joining us. And, and when were you in, in Ukraine and for how long? Uh, I was there in November, December. I was there for a month, and I went on a quite a long, lengthy sort of crescent-shaped tour of all the front lines. I was with a, a group called White Stork, uh, org. Then we, we delivered uh, first aid kits and non-lethal aid to some of the folks there, and uh, I got a pretty good feel for what was going on there. And of course, you wrote the book "License to Kill: Hired Guns in the War on Terror," which was largely about the Blackwater mercenary group, who, of course, members of it were convicted of slaughtering Iraqi civilians during the Iraq War. How much do you know about the Wagner Group, who the U.S. Has just designated as a transnational criminal organization. Yeah, so one of the unfortunate things about being me is that I'm sort of a magnet for mercenaries and militias and jihadis and whatever. And I, I wrote a book called License to Kill Hired Guns in the War on Terror, which was essentially about the creation of uh, what we call PMCs, private military companies. And I extended that to also the old school mercenary operations and modern uh, mercenary operations, uh, for example, trying to overthrow the uh, government of Equatorial Guinea. And and I sort of end the book with a a warning that this is something we need to pay attention to because it it harks back to the East India Company where war became sort of a, a business and it solves a lot of political problems that we may not even know exists, but uh, there are armed people doing other countries' biddings. So when, when Wagner Group first sort of emerged, it was actually made out of these PMCs, some of the um, anti-piracy PMCs that were staffed by Russians. And uh, most people don't realize that the Wagner Group actually began as sort of a, 
a kitchen cleaning contract for the Russian military run by a guy named Yevgeny Prozogin. And he had this very interesting tactic of creating a whole bunch of companies, mostly owned by his mother, and then bidding on these contracts and then winning them all. And he became very wealthy in the area of food service and cleaning. In 2010, and most people don't realize this, he went to Cyprus and he started buying military gear, which wouldn't be that unusual, you know, helmets, jackets, pants, whatever. Except when the Russians invaded Georgia, it was actually the first time we saw Wagner, although it wasn't called Wagner then, and these little green men, sort of nondescript, unmarked fighters working on behalf of Russian interests. Uh, he, uh, Prizhogin, says that his organization began in 2014 when he went to Donetsk and started buying weapons. And, and that's a fiction. That's a convenient fiction. But that's where they really first hit the uh, news. And, of course, when his people shot down the Malaysian airliner, I think that's when everybody realized that there's something very evil happening in Eastern Europe. And he's expanded into Africa, into Syria and Libya, the Central African Republic, where he's also been accused of... I mean, I don't know whether it's accused is the right word, but he apparently has mining interests in Sudan and the Central African Republic, and there's even speculation that one of the reasons that they got involved, the Wagners got involved in the Bakhmut offensive recently, uh, was to control the area's salt and gypsum mines. So he's in the business of war and war profiteering. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and I, th I think we have to be careful because we want to boil everything down to one, one size fits all, right? And in, in reality, Putin wants to expand Russian influence, not, not just in Ukraine, not just in Chechnya and uh, Georgia and places like that. He wants to expand it all around the world. And he feels that this low-level infiltration, what some people call hybrid warfare, is the perfect solution. Now, you have to remember that in the Central African Republic, Wagner was actually just part of a much bigger package. So you had three warring groups. You had a country that nobody really wanted to deal with. And he sent Lavrov down there and cut deals. He then offered them financing for mines and deals, I mean, you know, investments. He then offered them security, security training, uh, a little bit of diplomatic top cover. And he brought, and I say he, I mean, Russia brought the three warring groups together. And it looked actually like a pretty good solution. Uh, it didn't last that long, but, you know, he expanded into other areas like Sudan, Libya, Syria. And each one of these countries had its own unique problem. And yes, there was some kind of economic incentive, but if you actually look closely at that economic incentive, whether it's gold mines in Sudan or whether it's oil in Syria, it's not that profitable. It's just a cover to move money in and out of the country. So what is his agenda now? He's openly taking credit for Soledad and basically said, I won exclusively, which has upset the Russian military, he's taking them on, he's using the military bloggers who have access to state media in Russia to essentially humiliate the military and praise himself, you know, says that I've been fighting for 10 years and these generals have basically been sitting at desks for 10 years. There's no question, Is he? what's he doing? Is he trying to please the godfather Putin or is he, is he vying for personal power? 
This is a very good question, and it's 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 wise to look at Wagner in three stages. You know, 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. So 1.0 so was sort of little green men where you didn't really pay attention to Wagner or Prijogin. Uh 2.0 was Africa where you saw all these PMCs, you know, with air quotes showing up. Um, involved in coups, squatting on oil fields, et cetera, et cetera. And 3.0 is when Prizhogin comes out of the closet in Ukraine. Now, you got to remember, PMCs are illegal in Russia. And one of the things that I was told, you know, because I was chatting with Wagner about doing a documentary, and they were insistent that I go to every single one of their <laughs> uh, projects all around the world and document what they were doing, uh, because they felt they were a force for good. And the only thing that stopped me from doing the documentary was that towards the, the final stages, and I was supposed to go to St. Petersburg, they said, you know, this project will rely on your faith in Russia and your belief in Russia. And I sort of did a double take like, what? So it, it's very clear that the efforts of Wagner are absolutely in the effort, are in the good of Russia, and they are controlled by the GRU. They are a a non-attributable militia linked and funded by the GRU. Um, it's, it's Which not is Russian the, military intelligence. Uh, correct, sorry. And there's also KGB has their own militias, but, but Prizhogin has managed to supercharge this. Now, you were talking about what's it, what are his goals, what, what the hell is he doing in Bakhmut. When I was in Bakhmut, I was with the Ukrainian special forces, and they were fighting against Wagner's people. And they kept saying that they they called them the meat wall. You know, they would charge and they would get 50% casualties. They would charge again, get the same amount of casualties, keep charging, charging. They would blow off all their ammunition, you know, run away, come back, blow off all their ammunition. And they were saying that this is just the slaughter of Russians. Now, at that time, they were prisoners. And uh, one, pe one thing that people might not know is that Prizhogin actually uses prisoners in his other businesses to do the food service and cleaning in Russia. So... I think it was Prizhogin that came up with the idea, like, let's clean out our prisons and just overcome numerically uh, the Ukrainians. And then we will follow that with the seasoned soldiers who make about five grand a month. And these are the guys that are, you know, come from Libya, come from uh, Syria. And these are professional soldiers that can hit you with one bullet, as, as, the, as the Ukrainian fighters told me. So I think he's trying different types of combat and I think the reason why he's focused on Bakhmut, where I was, is because it's part of Donetsk. Uh, Donetsk. He, he seriously believes in Donetsk as being the toehold uh, for the liberation of Ukraine. The salt mines can be flooded. They can be blown up. You know, that's all silly to say that he's going to make money by spending all this money, which is, you know, Russian money. But what is important is that he came out of the closet. He started, you remember the, his sledgehammer that he awarded to the gave it to some kind of politician, uh, mm -hmm. his speeches at the prison, his constant interviews on his um, uh, telegraph site. He, he, telegram site, he is constantly promoting the idea that he's better than the military. And that's dangerous because the experts I talk to always remind me that he's a useful idiot. You know, he's a thug, he's a former prison hot dog vendor and whatever, but he will fall out of a third story window at some point, and then Russia will move on with a more sophisticated method. Right. Well, the sledgehammer that that politician showed off is their signature, and they used, uh, Prigozhin's people used a sledgehammer to beat to death. I think he was a deserter amongst the Wagner groups, 
but they had a very prominent deserter who made its way across the uh, northern Arctic border with Norway, where he's being debriefed, and he's really spilling the beans, is he not? Yeah, but it's it's not a secret what Wagner is. I mean, they're basically a group that hires people for three to five thousand a month. Uh, they're cleaning out the prisoners, and they're using them as basically walls of, to absorb bullets. Uh, they have some mercantile interests in Ukraine and Africa. So this this is all well documented. The thing that baffles me is that why hasn't this group been clearly labeled as a terrorist group, meaning that you've got a private citizen. You, you can see videos of Prizhogin bragging in the salt mines about how his people took Bakhmut and Solodar, or, sorry, Solodar, and soon to take Bakhmut. And this is a private citizen. This is like the head of McDonald's bragging about taking over, you know, Iraq or something. And all his employees are not part of the military. They're private citizens. So if, if you were to create a militia group or violent group made out of private citizens that were deliberately trying to terrorize people. And you remember, the, the sledgehammer was not the first incident. They, they had one incident in Syria where they chopped somebody up with a shovel uh, for being a, I think he was either a deserter or an informer. Um, this is what he does for a living, not for any military purpose. He has no authority to do what he's doing. So creating a criminal element is, is, is kind of a weak, weak sauce approach to this. And the idea of sanctions with a guy who's got a jet and can fly around the world seems a little bit of a weak response. Well, he, uh, <laughs> he of course, is a troll, Prigozhin. You say now he's going public. I mean, he ran the troll farm that interfered in the 2016 election to help elect Trump and hurt Hillary Clinton. He actually responded to the National Security Council's spokesman, uh, Admiral John Kirby, on his telegram. Prigozhin says something like, Dear Mr. Kirby, please explain to me uh, what laws I've broken or something. It was sort of tongue-in-cheek polite. So he, he is public and he is a troll, but you say he's, he's also dispensable. At some point or other, Putin could get rid of him. I mean, clearly Shoigu and Gerasimov, the leaders of the Russian military, must be furious at what he's saying about them in public. Well, I think Putin is smart enough to apply two solutions, three solutions, four solutions. And you've got to remember that um, when I was in Libya, they'd arrested a guy, Shugulai, Maxim Shugulai, who was a political consultant who had flown into Libya to meet with Haftar and, and Gaddafi's kid, um, Saif Islam, and they were pitching with a PowerPoint how they were going to support both these candidates, in other words, against each other, each thinking that they were the, the chosen one. And then they fl flowed in military fighters to support Haftar. So the point is that it's a multidimensional task, and he used to be quiet about fronting it, and now he sees value in poking the bear. In other words, he's, he's acting as sort of a front guy, which makes him even more valuable if he disappears and goes down. So there, there's another Wagner in, in, in the making right now that's very quiet, very legitimate, and will take over his place. So I, I think he's going out with a bang. But at the briefing when Kirby announced that the U.S. was designating the Wagner Group as a transnational criminal organization, he showed satellite pictures of rail cars in North Korea being filled up with military equipment, and they supposedly belonged to Prigozhin. 
So where does he get the money from to buy the arms? Well, he gets it from the GRU, which is our mm-hmm. sort of, you know, DIA slash NSC slash CIA, whatever. But it's a military intelligence group that does the dirty work. Now, remember, the Pentagon published photos of MiGs on the oil base in Shawara in Libya and saying these are mercenary-owned and flown jets. In other words, they flew to Syria. Uh, they fixed up or swapped a bunch of MiG-21s, flew them back to Libya. And this, this is a criminal group with jet fighters. So <laughs> I think our response is, is almost laughable because we could very clearly identify this as a rogue movement, no different than bin Laden's group or ISIS, you know, a group of private individuals with money and weapons that are murdering people. I, I don't see the difference. Right, but our previous guest on today's program pointed out that states fail because they lose the monopoly on violence. And, you know, you have the example, for example, of, of Haiti today, which is run by uh, criminals and gangs. And that the fact that you've got these Wagner groups and you've got Hadirov's Chechens, who are under the command of Russia's National Guard, which reports to Putin, the specter arises of the possibility of a failed state with a massive nuclear arsenal. Yeah, but let's flip it around. Let's assume that Putin does have control over the use of violence and that the funding of Wagner comes from the government, the GRU. And if you read Machiavelli, what he says very clearly is that mercenaries are very useful. And when you're done with them, kill them because they will march on your capital. So I don't think Putin's stupid. I think he's using Wagner very specifically and it's working. And we focus our energy on Wagner. We should be focusing on Putin. Well, Robert Young Pelton, you've given us a lot to think about. And um, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's always a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Robert Young Pelton, an author, filmmaker, journalist, and explorer. He's the publisher of Dangerous Magazine and has had first-hand perspective on the war on terror from direct contact with the world's most infamous jihadi rebel insurgent groups. And his books include The World's Most Dangerous Places, Come Back Alive, Three Worlds Gone Mad, License to Kill Hired Guns in the War on Terror, and his autobiography, The Adventurist, and he recently returned from the front in Ukraine. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.